Welcome to the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that panel members are expressing their own views and opinions, which should not be construed as advice. The audience must carry out their own research and consult an appointed professional for advice. Welcome to the Property Development Book podcast. In today's discussion, we'll be looking at master planning as it pertains to large regeneration projects. We've got a great panel of guests with us today, consisting of architects, planners, regeneration specialists. So we're going to get right stuck into the discussion now, begin with introductions. I'm Faith Lochkin, I'm a development manager and chartered commercial surveyor, and I'll move over to my right. Thanks, Faith. Uh, my name is Jazz, I'm the principal at Jazz Butler Architects. Um, I'm a town planner, an architect, and uh, have a background in master planning and urban design. Hi everyone, I'm Peter George. I lead, I lead large-scale regeneration projects in North London, including Moody and Water. Hi, I'm Ayo Ajayi. Uh, I'm a regional director at Chorus Projects. Hi, I'm Hannah Fulabi. I'm a development director for Balfour Beatty Investments, and I lead and specialise in regeneration projects. Hi everyone, I'm Umdeep Kalra, I'm an architect and urban designer and an associate at VFIRST. I'm Nathaniel Thomas, um, I'm a principal development management officer, um, dealing with kind of large scale redevelopment sites and regeneration sites around East London um, with some experience in West London as well. Cool. So first question um, for the audience, for people that don't know, what is master planning? I'm going to direct that at Nathaniel first. Uh, so master planning is kind of looking at a really comprehensive kind of scale of planning where you're looking at a plot of land or a really large plot of land um, and essentially it's identified as having kind of large scale redevelopment opportunity um, where it could be partnered with the local authority or private um, development firm could come in and essentially have the foresight to say I don't know if it's a small plot of land we're going to have maybe a thousand units in there over a certain amount of time or within a certain space um, and you look at that, that piece of land comprehensively so that looks at the infrastructure, uh, you know, how many units you're going to get in there. Um, if it's residential, commercial, it's something that kind of really brings in everything into one piece and it's it's trying to avoid any kind of piecemeal kind of development. And in saying piecemeal, I mean, you're not chopping off a slight bit of the block and then someone comes in a lot later and does it, you know, and, and leaves it for someone else to look at. You want to look at this piece of land as a whole redevelopment opportunity. Um, and at the point at which you come in and identify that, you're looking at kind of like a five to ten year kind of plan and how that's going to be delivered. Um, that would be my understanding of it and my experience in, in working from the local authority point of view. Yeah, and Amadou, you're, you're an architect by sort of trade. How do you look at or approach a master planning exercise? For, for me, it's uh, master planning is creating pieces of city. And when you look at uh, towns or city, what, what do you have within that? And when you look at a master plan, it's kind of a smaller version of that at a, a micro scale. So this means you're thinking about streets, public spaces, you're thinking about infrastructure that Nathaniel was touching on. You're thinking about densities, what works, what doesn't work, what are the transport connections. Um, you're thinking about social infrastructure as well. You're thinking about schools, you're thinking about um, GPs, etc., um, etc. Et so it's a much more com comprehensive way of designing and the idea is uh, and often master planning and urban designer crossover and interlace urban design is kind of thinking a lot more about the spaces in between the buildings and thinking about neighborhood uh, scale uh, master planning you are considering all of those additional things about massing height density streetscape 
public realm, etc., etc. And then that is you effectively create a little piece of a city yeah. uh, framework for that. And jazz, you've obviously architect and town planning mm -hmm. together is your background. Did you have anything to add to that? Or is... uh, no, that's pretty comprehensive. I mean, except to say that um, one of the key distinguishing features in my mind about uh, designing a single building versus a master plan is that with a master plan, you're not working with uh, one particular client who's going to come go to site at, at once. Like it's going to, as the guys uh, alluded to, it's it's a process. So it will take you know anywhere between five and fifteen years. And often, a good master plan looks at sort of managing different processes. So you might have, for example, in an inner London site, some works to a gyratory or a major piece of road that's happening next year, and uh, the build out. Uh, uh, th that would then release some land for buildings or, or infrastructure or public spaces and that is on a different time scale because of the amount of housing being delivered and that might need to happen over five years. So a master plan is a sort of framework, a flexible framework that allows those things to come together mm -hmm. and make sure, make sure that things are sort of uh, uh, they're cohesive and have some strategy behind them rather than you know somebody coming along and, and building something with the road and and, and then something else happens, and we don't. Nothing is optimized. Nothing is really, um, you know, designed meaningfully. Mm. Um, and I think I think one of the other really key important things about about master planning is its interdisciplinary nature. So we're a panel, I think, who are uh, you know architects, town planners, surveyors. But the other the big element to that that that, that constitutes master planning is also landscape, mm. and and that is you know landscape sustainability, blue and green infrastructure. Um, that that's playing more and more of a role in terms of thinking about how these places are coming together. Mm. Um, Hannah, I'm going to come over to you. What, what do you think are the most important principles when, when carrying out some master planning? I think the most important principle is remembering that the space you are designing or creating or re-looking at actually is connected to other spaces. So a lot of the time we look at an area and say, okay, well, we're going to master plan this, but you forget its connection to the other areas and people don't live in silos. So I think the, the most important principle is how you connect to the wider area that you are also designing for. Um, and then thinking about the, the journeys of the people who are going to be living there. And so it's not just, you know, or, or working there and or experiencing. And so it's thinking about how, what those routes look like and those connections and the spaces in between the buildings. And then it's, okay, so now what those buildings actually do and function than the, the design, mm -hmm. I would say. But for me, I think it's the, the, the zooming out first is a very, very fundamental principle. And then zooming back into the experience of the individual going through that, that space that you're trying to relook at. Mm -hmm. Peter, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think for me, um, a successful master plan is what I would call a, a people-orientated plan. So it's, it's thinking about um, the spaces beyond bricks and mortar and what is going to make a successful environment for the people that are going to be living there. So depending upon the scale of the master plan, it's potentially delivering a, a new neighbourhood for the area, whether it's in London or anywhere else in the country. So what, is, what, is, what are the key ingredients that we all enjoy in the neighbourhoods that we live or that we love to spend time that needs to be in the master plan and I think so beyond in addition to the the homes and the workspace 
It's also thinking about um, local amenities. It's, it's thinking about bars, cafes, parks. And in, in the current climate, we have to think a lot about um, the role of the master plan in contribution towards climate change and how we can design a place so there's a space for everyone. So thinking about it also in terms of the qualities, diversity and inclusion. So in terms of making sure that the, you know, you're, we're thinking about the wider neighbourhood, often we will go through consultation processes, um, some, some being statutory, some being public. Um, from a consultation perspective, do we think that everyone's views are kind of taken into consideration in mass fair? And that's going out to anyone, so anyone can jump in. <laughs> so I, I think um, consultation is, um, is not a democratic process is, is the, the fundamentals of it. It's statutory consultation. You have to go out and try and resolve issues for the utility suppliers, for, um, as it's, I don't know, the e like uh, eco-environmental uh, um, uh, uh, stakeholders. When you come to public consultation, everyone has a different view. So there's a, di there's a difference between, actually, you need to make sure that the amount of water flow going into the Thames water is X. And so you have to consult with Thames Water that they can manage the development of your scheme. And a neighbour or a person saying, actually, I hate this, the colour of your building. Mm -hmm. you, how do you take that on board if someone else is saying, actually, I kind of like the colour of that building? And so the, the, the public consultation process is about hearing views, but not not every view can be taken on board and it's not actually a public vote it goes back to your local councillors your your local authority determining whether or not it hits certain criteria to be delivered mm. um yeah so it's kind of hard it's to kind please of hard everyone to isn't everyone. it and and see you nodding. Yeah, <laughs> i mean it's not possible to take everyone's views on board and also not everyone comes out to give their opinion yeah um so you know you set out a public consultation you hope people will come and attend, and then you hope the views that are, are that that are being pro like provided at that public consultation is varied enough. But the actual truth is is that it's not. You have a certain type of people who have the time, and have the uh, wherewithal to engage in a public consultation. Mm. So but where I think you mentioned about people have a vote or not, the only time that might vary is within a GLA context. Mm. And if you've got re regeneration to existing estates where you are demolishing and building, I believe the number's over 150, mm. PC might be able to. Um, or, uh, that's when actually, if you are taking GLA funding, you yeah. are required to actually get a ballot yeah. from the residents who may actually decide, no, development's not for us in this context. And you, there are certain metrics that a certain amount of people have to participate. And often that can be actually voting two, two or three choices, and one of which could be full-scale redevelopment, and another one could be, actually, there could be some infill development with refurbishment, and then there's something else. So there are certain points mm. where if you're taking GLA funding, you, you, can have, you can be more empowered. But I think the, the challenge comes to when residents start to feel that development is done to them rather than for them. Mm -hmm. And I think, for me, when it starts to flip the other way, when they feel it's for them, is when... Firstly, the mindset that the development organisation takes to go to residents in the first place is one of development is for these people and therefore it is imperative that what we design is suitable to their needs. 
And it, that starts from go, starting at the beginning. And I think rather than going to actually, we're about to go to planning in three weeks' time, or actually we've gone to planning, and that's the only time we're getting a consultation mm. in. Because at that point, most people feel disenfranchised, and actually, you're doing this regardless. And then at that point, all you will get is feedback that is often quite negative because, well, you didn't ask me what I thought. So I think the process beginning right at the beginning with blank sheets of paper. Uh, because often um, these people know the residents have lived there, know their area more than any of us will ever know. Mm -hmm. And I think when people feel that actually I have something to give to you that you don't have and you're listening to me for it, they will thank you infinitely and actually come on board with the journey. I think the difficulty with that, and I agree with you, like you have to start very early on in the consultation process. It's just that sometimes you can't take on every single oh, person agree with you. you yeah. And you're limited by legislation regulation yeah. and and just other border desires from say say local authority or other other kind of key groups and so you still do lose some of that um lose some of the kind of like public buy into the scheme because you can't deliver on something that they think should be an easy win when actually it just really isn't yeah so there's a balance there yeah totally i mean i, 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 I kind of get where both of you are coming from it's like I think we need to sort of remember that um, because consultation has been done so badly for such a yeah. long time people inherently approach the process with an enormous amount of suspicion mm. um, you know su suspicion of local authorities suspicion of developers who sort of promise lots of things then sell a site then a new new person comes in and can't deliver any of the things that are sort of beyond just the bare bones um, I think it, 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 it's it's a sort of inherent challenge with large-scale um, uh, master planning projects where, where sadly a lot of the time in, in a UK context land is flipped constantly as, as, as uh, a site comes forward so you'll have one developer who, who has done a viability calculation and can afford to deliver a school, a park uh, in a sustainable urban drainage and will present all these visuals and because of the way finance is associated to development something will go wrong, they'll need to sell it, they'll have need to make a profit on that sale and a lot of that value is stripped out and that's when it becomes inherently challenging to kind of continue to take people with you. Yeah. So I think we, in, in, in the last sort of few years, we've really seen, um, I think, a kind of renewed vigour with which we're trying to approach public consultation um, and, and try to sort of open things up. But I think the only way, as you said, to, to do that is to kind of start things from the offset. Mm -hmm. um, Touching upon, you mentioned there, viability mm -hmm. and finance. Obviously, finance is linked to development. Um, from a viability perspective, um, this question is going to kind of go mm. to Hannah and to Aya as well. Um, how how does a developer, or if you're a consultant advising developer, how do you look at sort of a master plan exercise and ensure that the project is viable and can remain viable, particularly if often if you're doing a master plan, it's you're looking at the long view, that sort of five plus years. Um, how are you, yeah? How are you um, like making sure that it it, it is viable and you can deliver it. Yeah, I think, um, and it's probably even a design point as well, you have to allow as much flexibility within the scheme as possible. So going through an outline master planning exercise, you you hope that at this at, at least some, some extent of the massing and scale and, and the proposals are, are set within at least the baseline. But like you said, over years things change. And so as you deliver one phase, um, and obviously within the context of an outline master plan, you can go back and you, you do your reserve master application. But sometimes you need to make amendments 
And so it's enabling within your, the context of your planning and in the context of your master plan design that you can adjust. And so I was working on one in Canning Town where we had done the master plan, did phase one, had an issue with, a, with one of our anchor tenants, had to flip the town centre redesign. And you have to, had to go back, look at the master planning principles and then resubmit a reserve master application. And I think the planning isn't necessarily the, the easiest thing to, to navigate <laughs> in the world, but allowing for, allowing for optioneering in your process is very important to ensuring the long-term view of viability. For an individual phase, you just have to also look at it in its own context outside of the other phases uh, while also looking at it in the in the total view because at the end of the day you have to go back to your funders or to your to your shareholders and justify why they might need to make the, that contribution to the community aspect now and then make up their profit in the future from a cost perspective I have you where have you seen master planning be done well and 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 phases be delivered um, and, and actually be profitable has it been done well? Um, let me just start with talking on some of the challenges um, around around you know cost modelling, especially master planning. Uh, it's one of the reasons I find uh, master planning so exciting, right? You've got a number of uses uh, all on one site. Uh, one of the challenges is the dependencies. So you know we talked about the infrastructure and the importance of the infrastructure. Uh, when you've got a number of stakeholders who, who, are, who are looking at, at particular, um, they've got their own particular um, challenges, their own particular um, and benchmarks that they're looking at and how, and how you divvy up, you know, so everyone knows the cost of, of an individual building, maybe they've got an idea of what a cost of a school might be or, or a residential block. When you then look at the infrastructure and then try and attribute a section of you know, it um, is a challenge. Um, we've talked about flexibility being such such an important uh, point. Flexibility and fixity of cost don't normally go together. So when you get flexibility, you don't really get. You know, it's hard. It's hard to pin down. There are there are ways of doing it well. So um, it, it is difficult. I mean, I've seen a number of schemes done well. I mean, the first master plan scheme I I, I was involved in is it was the Canada Water scheme. Um, that was the Barrett scheme with Infinity Sutter. Uh, I was working more so on the Affinity Sutton side um, as an employer's um, agent, but seeing that go through on the phases and seeing, you know, it, it kind of culminated with the tower at the end. Uh, but seeing that come together and seeing what it's done to the local area uh, was amazing. Again, there was challenges there where, uh, you know, viability and everything's set. You know, you, you talk about the length of time that a, a typical um, master plan takes, you know, we're preempting, you know, you, you can build in your, your fluctuation uh, metrics, you can look at where you think inflation is going to be. However, um, at the same time, it's always sensitive to market, right? So, you know, the, the local developer there has got, you know, construction costs is, is, is a lot of what I, I deal with, but also the valuation and they know where they think they're going to come to. Um, as, as to how the market reflects, so it um, um, determines effectively, also has, the, you know, everyone's there to make money. So there's also points such as uh, Hannah has mentioned as to why you might have to look at, at reshuffling and doing other projects, sorry, other phases uh, and bringing them forward. Not easy, again, with planning. And how do you fix that? You know, I, I've worked on master plans as well, where, um, you know, King's Cross is probably another example. I mean, I've, I've done, uh, you look at the, the length of time that King's Cross has gone on and what Argent have done on that site. And I've, 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 I've covered, you know, a kind of three year period, um, a short period of that, but seeing what they've done there, um, and seeing how they've used and, and, and just changed and revolutionised that, that, that site uh, has been amazing. Again, like I say, you're fixing costs at the beginning. 
um, and you're trying to make those estimates moving forward is not diff- it's not easy, especially where you have things like Brexit. Macro. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say macroeconomic factors. You know, like, COVID, yeah. Um, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a very difficult task. I guess, you know, ha- my, my job is making sure that the client has considered all these factors and within their own constraints, uh, work with them, you know, because everyone's got different individual needs mm. um, and, and, and to get as much flexibility as possible and making sure that they fully understand what the risks uh, um, are. So there's a number of examples. I'd say Canada Water, King's Cross that I've worked on that are uh, I've seen done really, really well and very, really, very really viable. Well, it's actually a lot of what you say reminds me that the question of what constitutes a good master plan. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key words uh, that we haven't mentioned yet is legacy mm-hmm. and having someone who's in it for the long term. Yeah. And, um, you know, like you may say what you want about the kind of stylistic um, response, but that's why like places like Poundbury, uh, done by Prince Charles, um, the Prince's Foundation, have because there's a kind of long-term investor who's got an eye to the future, they have been able to kind of invest a lot into the public realm, into landscape, things like that, you know. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're seeing more sort of pension funds get involved, institutional investors getting involved with big master plans because they have the kind of heft behind them to, to, to sort of provide capital on the long-term and, and look to long-term returns mm-hmm. rather than a short-term fix. Um, there was. Uh, uh, something in the paper uh, like about a month ago about um, the his- the legacy of uh, the Batsy power station redevelopment, and it was it was so interesting. Like I'm not we haven't got time to go through it, but it is is so it's a in- really interesting case study into the challenges of developing a really complex site where people where it's been flipped so many times. Yeah. And I think it was once sold for like a pound to the um, yeah. owner of Alton Towers or something mm-hmm. like that. I, n- I never knew that until yeah. I read it. And, it's, it's just taken such a long time and gone through so many changes and you know there's things that are done well about it but there's an enormous amount of compromise that's happened and that sort of physical uh, um that the, the sort of yeah the, the, the way that those are sort of manifest in in the space you can you can see it on the site as well with the kind of compromises yeah i think just building on that i think the success of a master plan can only really be judged over time you know I think some of these master plans take a decade or two to build out and it's quite easy to cast an opinion when they're still in mid-flow. Mm-hmm. I think the ultimate adjudicators of a successful master plan are people themselves. So particularly where the master plan is you know, a mixed-use master plan, you know, the extent to which those public spaces are used the extent to which the amenities are used, the extent to which the homes remain desirable and sought after years after the developers left, that demonstrates a truly successful master plan. And I think the examples given around Canada Water and King's Cross, King's Cross are good ones, although they are still got further stages to go. And I think, you know, the Olympic Park is also looking like it's proving to be very successful. So you talked about that legacy piece and making sure that when you're designing the master plan, you're thinking long term, way after the developers kind of you know finished. Um, and Amandeep, you touched on a very good point earlier about through that consultation process when you're trying to you know bring the public along the journey. Sometimes, often people feel that development's being done 
to them. Um, and there's also often a lot of talk around gentrification um, and you know the kind of big bag developer coming in, uh, regenerating an area, and then the people that have lived there and you know have cultural roots in that area get kind of either priced out or kind of kicked out, you know, the CPO, etc. Um, so this sort of final question to wrap up the 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 episode on the on the point of gentrification. Do we think, and this is to anyone, so feel free to chip in, do you think it's possible to regenerate an area without gentrifying it? I, I can start this. I, I think um, gentrification is a consequence of regeneration, uh, particularly if you, don't, if you don't understand those consequences up front. I think it most indefinitely ends up always being a, a, a negative impact of region and most a lot of the areas we've just talked about Kings Cross, Canada Water probably um, coming on to Stratford probably in five ten years <laughs> as well I feel absolutely all those areas even if we're talking about where we are today in Dalston um, think about the challenges that we have Ridley Road markets have been in the press lately about um, and actually if you think very lately about all of the markets um, that have had to fight themselves to stay where they are we're talking Save Latin Village and Seven Sisters that have had a 15-year fight with the developer. We're talking about Brixton Market, Nord Cash and Carry there. And all of these fights are because um, private developers or other developers have just seen the value of the land that those uh, communities have sat in. And often they were there at the beginning because that was the cheapest land that they could be in in London. Once everything else has had happened around them, that land is worth so much that there is pressure for them to leave. So. You can see right now it's happening in a lot of communities, and I think there is a way. There is ways to avoid it, but that requires really active head-on approach on understanding affordability, both in terms of businesses, because it, it, it's a kind of catastrophe. It's a, it's a businesses and residents thing together. So you take the example of, let's say, Tooting, for example. I don't know if any of you are too familiar with that community. Uh, what's happening? Tooting is what I'm calling stealth gentrified. <laughs> so we're not seeing big, big developers coming in doing large master plans, but actually it's, a, it's an area with the community that's had Tooting Market, Broadway Market, lots of small businesses that have been there for a long time. Going to Tooting Market now and, and going in there 10 years ago, have a conversation with one of the stallholders there and you'll see what challenges they're facing. In, in, in a place like that where you had independent businesses on very low rents serving that local area, uh, and now no longer have the customers that they would originally have had. And the people that are coming into that market now, things like Frank Manka, Brickwood, you're getting all sorts of these, these kind of institutions or brands of organizations that are effectively coming in, changing the footfall, changing the demographic of who will be entering those markets, uh, paying higher rent, um, and putting pressures on a lot of the storeholders who've had to leave because they can't afford to be there right now. So businesses go because new residents come, they demand different businesses. Um, and then, and then d different people have come in. So then, people now no longer have the businesses that they would be going to, and then they move out. So there's this cyclical process, and this is an area there isn't huge master plans and regeneration. I hundred percent think unless there is an active approach on where you're protecting affordability, it will be an inevitable consequence of every regeneration project. So how do we protect that affordability? I think it's just one of the most complex parts of. Um regeneration and master planning and to be honest I would struggle to think of a good example where this has not occurred. Um, you know, talking about some of those regeneration projects that we've already mentioned, 
uh, has the has the prospects of the communities living adjacent to the developments improved over time? Not visibly so, is what I would suggest. Um, it is a top priority for what we're trying to do at Moody Water in Edmonton. For the last seven years, we've said a top priority for us is the local people of Edmonton to be the principal beneficiaries of all the growth. And secondly, that we want to lift the Edmonton wards out of the top 10% most deprived. Now, how do you do that? A myriad of ways, but I'll give you some examples. Um, firstly, it's about prioritising the economic growth for local people and local businesses. So prioritising job creation, skills and apprenticeship for local people. In September, we'll open a Construction Skills Academy. That will be prioritised for local people, for example. We've got developers to invest in community chess, which is for local people to spend um, in their community. 20% of the construction spend on the first site has gone to a local business, creating 80 new jobs. You know, so if you extrapolate that out across the development, it will have a huge, um, it will have a huge impact. Prioritising affordable housing for local people will have a huge impact, but you know we cannot control the sales values of the properties adjacent to where we're building. That is just an inevitable consequence of designing, building, and delivering a successful neighbourhood. You're tuned into the Property Development Book Club. Thank you for watching it. If you can like, share, and subscribe, a lake. Like, share, and describe. Subscribe. <laughs> 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 I'm Adewale Ademalake, founder at A Lake, which specialises in property development and development management. We are sponsoring the first season of the Property Development Book Club podcast, which will be out on all platforms soon. So what you can't do is is um, like when you're doing the regeneration, you're densifying an area. So you can look after the people who are there, which is very important to do. But you can't, like you are effectively bringing a bunch of new people into the area. And you can't dictate what demographic those people will be. Mm. And so they they might be the people who have the want the nice matcha latte yeah. <laughs> oat milk, and therefore a cafe has to open up to service that. So. Like, I think what, what Peter's saying and what you're doing is amazing. Like, that is how you are supposed to be um, looking after the area. You're supposed to be investing back into local people. You know, we have funds that we ha we've created and grants that we've created. And similarly, on the Olympic Park, there's a construction academy. That is what you're supposed to be doing, making sure the local people are looked after. But then the gentrification piece is that new people will move in. And it's typically people who are affluent and capable of purchasing the value of these new homes. Mm -hmm. And that does change the demographic of an area. I, just to, I'll just make one final quick point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I totally agree. It's like the most challenging thing, especially mm -hmm. when we talk about master planning in a, in a London or city-centric context. But one of the things I think that's most disappointing, really, is when you see an area change uh, and there's all this investment coming mm. and that investment is siloed like there are like on my local high street you can see that the, the sort of units the retail units 
from the people that have been there for a long time and then new people have come in mm-hmm. and, and there's, very, there's always very much a racial dimension to that as well in, in a London context. And I, I do think um, you know, there's much more we can do from a policy point of view and from a culture point of view mm-hmm. where places are changing, we find a way to allow that investment to kind of spread out. Like, you know, because it's a huge opportunity. If people are willing to spend £3.50 on a hot drink, like that's, that's a huge opportunity yeah. in terms of wealth that's coming in that could be distributed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, hopefully places like Marine Water can allow to start having those conversations about more nuanced tools to, to sort of improve that. Yeah. Um, for me, it comes down to the, the protection element because I think what you're saying is we can't, we can't, um, we can't control who comes in, what they buy, what um, what things they're interested in. But what we can do is protect what made that area unique in the first mm-hmm. place. Because other otherwise, gentrification starts to create generic master plans all over town, which will almost have a very different version of the same shop, similar people. The things that make Edmonton unique from Barking to some parts of like Brixton, etc. We got to protect that. So you know, in the case of Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre being demolished, mm. yes, all those shopkeepers, not all of them have. You know, eighty percent have been given other opportunities. But what have you lost there? You've, you've lost a group of people that created a specific atmosphere and interest in a place that made that part special. Mm. If you've dispersed all these people in higher rental, what you've lost is a community that took several years, decades to build. And I think if if we can do the the protection piece, whether it's right, if, if some if a building has to go and, and people have to be rehoused, it's the same thing with Save Latin Village. They had their own community action plan. We're not opposed to development, but it must be conducive to our needs. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of protecting the things that make each town and each area so special and unique, whilst knowing that it will change, but the change should be in the benefit of the new people and, and the people that have been there for gen- generations. Mm-hmm. Well, Did you have- yeah, yeah, I think it kind of just speaks to that whole putting people at the heart of that process, mm-hmm. putting the community at the heart of that process. I mean, um, what is the intention of the master plan? Essentially, if you're intending for this place to be completely transformed and to, for everyone that was there originally to you know, be priced out, then that's definitely going to happen. But if you have put them at the heart of that process from the start, you've gone through your consultation, you know that we're actually trying to build this place up for the people that live there. But at the same time, understand that things will organically change as that goes on as part of that process. Um, but again, that interesting point in terms of what kind of mechanisms do we have over time to ensure that, you know, five years down the line, those communities aren't forgotten about. You know, they weren't, they were, might have been the priority at the start, and then five years down the line, they're forgotten about entirely. There's no funding, section 106 money's run out. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. So mm-hmm. I think understanding the whole course of that master plan, you've got a 15 year master plan, People will come in, but what was the intention in the first place? We wanted to make homes better for people that live there, um, and putting those at the heart of that process, I think, will will definitely aid that. At this point, you can't control who comes into the area. <coughs> I don't entirely agree because what you can control is the levels of affordable housing. Yeah. And what we've seen on a number of major developments is the level of affordable housing is inadequate. And that does result in gentrification if the level of affordable housing is you know, 20-25%. And that's not just happening in London. I think some of the developments in Manchester have also got a really low level of affordable housing across that whole city. And that's really going to impact the city of Manchester. So we can build in 40-50% affordable housing with a good level of social housing, but also intermediate housing so that 
those who are not eligible for affordable social housing, those priced out of private housing still have an affordable means of continuing to live in an area. I'd, I mean, I, I would challenge that in the sense that from a developer's perspective and a viability perspective, as much as you know, a developer might want to build you know, lots of affordable housing, it comes down to cost. And like we were saying earlier, when you're looking at a 15-year plan, the level of affordable housing we could build today might not be the same in seven years' time. So I think there's there's a lot to be considered in that process. I think just, just, add... Can I come back on that point? Yeah. I, sure, sure. <laughs> I, um, I think where London's um, in a better place than places outside is we have a regional plan in the London plan mm -hmm. which sets as a threshold a level of affordable housing at 50%. What that therefore means is when developers are looking to buy land, mm -hmm. they price in a higher level of affordable housing than would be the case if you don't have that strong planning requirement. So what's happening in these other parts of the country is developers are buying land thinking they can get away with 20% because the planning system isn't as strong and that's why you end up with lower levels of affordable housing. I agree with you to some extent and just on the point like even if you did 50% of affordable housing for instance you've taken a you take I'm, I'm not sure what Meridian Water are doing but you've taken a scheme that was say 500 homes and now you've got 1,500 homes you might have 750 affordable housing but you still have 750 units that are private and so at the end of the day, the, 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 the makeup of the area has to change. Like it will change because you've densified the scheme. And then on top of that, where you have other places where people are doing low levels of affordable housing, and this might be slightly controversial, but it is the local authorities' responsibility to deliver affordable housing. That sits with the, like with the local authority and with our local planning authority. Private developers have taken on that responsibility because local authorities lost that power. But fundamentally, a local authority should dictate and should push for affordable housing in an area where it requires it. They have the housing register list. It's their allocations. They have the responsibility to the local people and they should be the people who are enforcing it. And unfortunately, a private developer is for profit. And so we ha you have to deliver to your profit requirements. And so I, I think, for me personally, I just think it, it, we have to put that responsibility back into local government. I think local well, authority do push this, both from a yeah. planning point of view and also both from a um, development, in-house development team point of view. I think the challenges, a lot of challenges come when local authorities get into bed with private developers in cross-subsidy models. Mm -hmm. I, I personally fundamentally disagree with that model because from what I've seen over time, all that happens is Inflation, price changes, challenges, Brexit, you may start off on the journey of a 50% affordable vision and actually what you see being delivered comes down to 25%, 20%. And at the point when a local authority has gotten into bed and in contract, developers can walk away. There's always a fear of actually, well, we can't do this if we have to stick to this. And at that point, you've taken residents on such a long journey, you've decanted the place, you've, you've almost destroyed 
that community to begin with. It's too much. It's too much skin in the game from a local authority point of view at that point to go. No, we're not going to do anything because we're not getting the fifty percent we want. And private developers do know that. They know at that point that there isn't much. The local authority is not going to back down. So that that's one point. The second point is there are a lot of local authorities doing um, high percentages of, of uh, mm-hmm. affordable housing themselves. So. Be first right now. We're developing. We're delivering seventy percent affordable housing, with up to thirty uh, percent of that that's at the social uh, London affordable rent and social uh, tenancy rent. And other local authorities in Enfield, um, um, in Harringay, and also other parts of the borough are, are taking the mantle mm-hmm. by themselves and going. Well, look, the market's not doing this. Yeah. The powers were taken away. There was this big, big local authority-led drive before. Mm-hmm. And we need to build up our stock again. So, and and the, there is a few mechanisms that private, uh, the local authority uh, has that private developers mm-hmm. don't. One being availability of land, and mm-hmm. second being availability of um, low cost funds. Yeah, they have those things at disposal. But I think there is still there. That doesn't for for me. It doesn't mean local authorities goes around developing. Um, affordable housing on the land they own and then private developers pick up bits of land and do 100% because what you're doing is recreating ghettos of problems by not mixing communities. Every single on development needs to be mixed. <laughs> 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 this is such a contentious point. Can I, can, I just, can I just go to Nathaniel quickly, Jas, and then we need to wrap this up. <laughs> just, just from an yeah, perspective, in terms of um, what that does in, in pushing that affordable housing um, kind of agenda politically, and how it empowers planning officers to then go to private developers when they're looking at land, say, well, you're the scheme next door is delivering 50% affordable housing. You're, we're not going to accept 25%. And, and that committee, there is no way that councillors will, they're aware of the borough. They know what's going on. They know what's going through the planning committee. If they're aware that down the road, Meridian Water is delivering 50%, and then a private developer comes in next door and says, well, we can only afford 25 like, well, no way. You're right next door. There's no way we're going to accept that. So the more we push for those and the more that comes forward, and we accept the 50% and we push for those, it, the, the culture completely shifts. And developers coming into the borough know that, well, we're not going to get this through committee if it's not 50%. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then that, that empowers everyone to kind of really push that agenda. Um, yeah. And I have found that working at Be First, working on both the private schemes and through the council, that we are able to go back to developers and say we are absolutely not accepting this and that's where we see the change thank you thank you and i think we're going to wrap it there (laughs) this is we could talk forever honestly it's been such a great discussion um yeah just hearing from everyone's perspective on regeneration on master planning um yeah this has been the property development book podcast we hope you enjoyed the conversation we look forward to you tuning in for a later episode thank you Thank you.